Good to be with you once more and appreciate the presence of everyone this morning. We have been speaking on a series of study of how we got the Bible and we're going to continue that this morning. Um, so far we've talked about the canon, whether or not these 66 books are the books that we should have and last night we talked about the copying process of how all the uh, inspired words were copied and, and disseminated throughout the kingdom of God in the first century. Today we're going to talk about manuscripts. I want to begin with a passage from Psalms, Psalms chapter 12 beginning verse 6. It says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And also in the New Testament, in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, it says, Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. God has promised that he would preserve his word for us. And because of those promises, we can be assured that Today we have access to the uh, Word of God as God would have us to know it. And uh, what we're looking at now is we're looking at the process uh, by which God would preserve that Word. And this morning we're going to look at the manuscripts. After the first century, the age of miraculous gifts, the practice of copying scriptures became necessary because the original copy, copies wore out. So they did, after the first century, we didn't have the protection of the miraculous gifts to, uh, to uh, oversee the, uh, the copying and the dissemination of Scripture. Um, but we do, have, we do know that God still uh, directed the uh, manifestation of these copies in that through a providence, he made sure that those uh, exact copies, the, the Word of God was preserved. In fact, we have today over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. According to the estimate in 2012, we've had 5,800 uh, copies of the manuscripts of the Word of God that were copied, that were made, uh, made between the 2nd and the 15th century. And discoveries of these uh, manuscripts continue today. Now that's a lot compared to other ancient writings, for instance, there's not a complete known copy of Homer earlier than A.D. 1300. Not all copies are uh, of equal value, however. Some are not as reliable as others, and we're going to look at those manuscripts, those various manuscripts, and evaluate them in a moment. The Bible was originally written in three languages. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and some of the Bibles written in Aramaic. A few expressions in the New Testament are, are, in, in the, uh, are Aramaic in the Old Testament, but by and large the Bible is written in uh, Hebrew and Greek. The Hebrew in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament. The, uh, now when it comes to copying, 
The difference between a manuscript and a translation, and we're going to talk about translations this afternoon, uh, is that in translation, um, you're translating from one language to another, while in copying, you just copy uh, the, the same thing onto another uh, document. So you could see that it would be easier to maintain accuracy when it comes to copying as opposed to translation. We need to keep in mind the difference between copying and translating. To illustrate the difference, uh, we have, uh, for example, this is the word in uh, Greek, lambano. Um, it has lama, off, alpha, mu, beta, alpha, nu, and omega. That's the letters in this word. Now, you wouldn't have to know what this word means in order to copy it. You would just copy what it, just what it, you see there. You would put it on a piece of paper. You wouldn't have to know the word. Although the copyists that copied the manuscripts did know the word, but you wouldn't have to know the word in order to make an exact copy of this word. The word uh, lambano, uh, that's how you would transliterate it in English, means to take or to receive. So, in order to translate it, you'd have to know what the word means, but to copy it, you wouldn't have to know. You would just make a duplicate of the letters and to copy it. So, you could see it'd be easier to copy and keep an accurate copy than it would be to translate because, for one thing, the, the languages don't always smoothly translate. In fact, there are some words in Greek that we don't have a, a complementary word in English, and so there has to be some explanation of the word in English. And, they call, and uh, so there has to be some extra words sometimes in order to explain a word <coughs> in Greek. But we can see that as far as copying goes, that that would be a lot easier to do. Since, God, uh, since the scriptures teach that God would preserve his word by providence, uh, we know that he has done that. He says that in Isaiah 40 and verse 8, and he repeats that in 1 Peter 1, verse 24 through 25. So we can be pretty confident that he has preserved uh, his word today in both the Old and the New Testament. Now, there are several manuscripts that exist, but they're not all the same. There are some that are re less reliable manuscripts, but because, ha because God has promised that he would preserve his word, uh, there must be accurate copies or accurate manuscripts among them. And I believe there are, and we're going to look at that. Now, the analyzing and study of manuscripts is what's called textual criticism. And uh, there are a lot of books written about textual criticism, and, and some of them are very good. And it kind of explains how the manuscripts come about. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> among the critics, it is almost unanimous that concerning which Hebrew text is the text of the Old Testament. There are basically just two, uh, manus two manuscripts to consider, the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, and the Masoretic text. Uh, Marion Fox, in his book on the Holy Spirit, Volume 2, uh, says in determining the correct text of the Hebrew scriptures, the Masoretic text, A.D. 900 to 1000 A.D., is preferred over the Dead Sea Scrolls by the scholars. The argument is made that 
The Masoretes were very careful in preserving the accuracy of the text. And that's the reason they give the, the Masoretic text uh, preference over the Dead Sea Scrolls is because of the uh, uh, intricacy in which they developed the text. Neil Lightfoot, in his book, How We Got the Bible, um, talks about these texts. He says, from the Jewish standpoint, any manuscripts that had been carefully uh, copied and carefully checked with an authentic exemplar was as accurate as any other copy. In some respects, the newer copy was even preferable to the older one, which would be more easily subject to wear and tear. What happened, the older manuscripts, the Jewish scribes looked upon their copies of the scriptures with an almost superstitious respect. This led them to give ceremonial burial to any of their texts that were damaged or defective. It was the function of the Masoretic, the Hebrew word for tradition, to guard the text, and the scribes who transmitted the text on the basis of their authoritative traditions are generally known as Masoretes. The Masoretes sought ways and methods by which to eliminate scribal slips of addition or omission. This they achieved through the intricate procedure of counting. They numbered the verses, words, and letters of each book. They counted the number of times each letter was used in each book. They noted verses that combined all the letters of the alphabet or a certain number of them. They, cal they calculated the middle letter, the middle word, the middle verse or th of the Pentateuch, the middle verse of Psalms, the middle verse of the entire Hebrew Bible, and so forth. In fact, they counted almost everything that could be counted. With these safeguards and others, when the scribe finished making a copy of a book, he could then check the accuracy of the work <clears throat> before using it. Now to illustrate this, we have this document. We're, we're all familiar with this document. Now if we were going to duplicate this document and we wanted to make sure it's accurate, if we use the system uh, of the Masoretic, you would locate the middle word in that page and when you copied it, it and every copy should have that word in the middle of the page you can see there's a word circled there that's the word people now if you if you made a, a uh, if you made a, a copy and that word people there that's in the middle of that document was over on the beginning of the sentence uh, then that copy would not be accurate. Or if it was the sentence above, it would not be accurate. And so that's how the Masoretes checked the, the documents to make sure that, that uh, they were accurate. They would count the letters in, like if, there were, if you counted the E's, say for instance, and you, in the first page is supposed to have 40 E's. I'm just throwing that out. I don't know how many E's is in that. But let's just say it was supposed to have 40 E's and somebody to check in the document when you copied it and they, and they found 45 E's, well, they would, say, they would know that that document was not accurate. And what they did when they found one that was not accurate is they buried it. They got rid of it so it couldn't be used again. They started all over, I mean from the beginning. They started again. And that's how meticulous the Masoretes were with copying the Old Testament manuscripts. And so we can see as... John Wingreen says it, it should be therefore it therefore should be stated explicitly that when we survey the Hebrew Bible as a whole, the incidence of copious errors is statistically very few indeed. It is remarkable how faithfully it was transmitted. So we can have confidence that the Old Testament, the manuscript, the uh, Masoretic text, 
is accurate because of the safeguards the Masoretes used in order to produce the text. Now when it comes to the New Testament, the question of the text is which is the true text or the original Greek is in dispute among scholars. There are basically two texts, and these aren't really like there's one, one piece of paper here and one piece of paper here like that. It's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when there's two texts, there's two groups of texts. And they are the center of debate among scholars. One is the uh, Nestle Aylins text, and the other is the majority text. Sometimes it's referred to as the Benzentine or Cohen text. The Texas Receptus, which is the text that's uh, the basis of the King James Version, is considered by most scholars to be of the majority text family. Some disagree with that, but uh, I'm, I, I believe that it's part of the majority text family. I'll talk a little bit about it here in a minute. Some claim the Nestle's text is a superior text, or Nestle's text, I'm sorry. The Nestle's text is an eclectic text. Now what that means is it's made up of various parts uh, and sources. They have uh, compiled, a committee compiled and examined the number of manuscripts in order to weigh which reading they thought uh, was closest to the original, so they would pick and choose from various texts. Uh, they used a number of factors to help determine probable readings. The main determining factor, however, is the is the age of the manuscript, how old it was. The older the better, they considered. And uh, the core of the Nestle's text is the Alexandrian manuscripts. And when I talk about Alexandrian manuscripts, I'm talking about those that come from the region around Egypt. They, uh, the basic texts were Codex A, which uh, was from about 300 to 450 AD. The Vatican manuscript called Codex B, from the 4th century, the Codex of Ephraim, which is called Codex C, the 5th century, Codex Bezaea, uh, Codex D, from the 5th century, and the Sinaitic Manuscript, Codex Aleph, from the 4th century. Of these, only two codexes, that is B and Codex Aleph, are complete. The rest are just fragments. And these, along with some of the other manuscripts compiled, make the Nestle's text and are classified as what we call the Alexander text, or oftentimes referred to as the minority text. Now the majority text is also, uh, because the majority text is called the majority text because of the vast majority of copies that exist. The number continues to grow as more discoveries are being made, but copies of the majority text have been found all over the world. It's been found in France and Switzerland and in Russia and Greece and etc. Majority text has remained basically unchanged as far back as it can be traced, as far back as somewhere near the 5th century. Uh, it must be noted that the Texas Receptus has some minor differences uh, from the majority text. These differences are minor and basically insignificant as far as the meaning of the passages. The, most of the differences in the Texas Receptus and majority texts are trivial. Let me give you an example. In the Greek, there is what's called a movable new. And what that means is, is 
at the end of a word, if the word ends in a vowel and the next word starts with a vowel, sometimes the Greek will add a movable new. And they'll put it in there too so that uh, it will have an even smooth break. Now we do that here in our English. For example, we don't say a apple. We, we insert an N and say an apple instead of a apple. And so we've inserted an N in, uh, with the word A because A and the word apple starts with A. And so that's the concept of the movable new. Now, in some of the manuscripts, some of them have the movable new and some of them don't have the movable new, but it doesn't change the meaning of the word. It doesn't change the meaning of the manuscript. It doesn't change the meaning of the statement in the passage. And so in the Texas Receptus, you'll find the movable new, where sometimes in the majority text you won't find the movable new, and so on. And so those are the kind of differences that you find between the Texas Receptus and the majority text, and some who are critics of the Texas Receptus will point out these differences as if there's some kind of change in the meaning of the, of the teaching or the words, and that's not the case. So they are re actually minor differences. So I wanted to point that out. Um, Michael D. Marlowe states, it, yet it differs from the received text in about a thousand places, most of them being trivial. The, the Texas Receptus finds support as far back as the second century, as we shall see later. We're going to look at some of the support from the second century of the Texas Receptus. The next, Nestle's text, the predecessor of the next, Nestle's text is the Westcott Hort text. It was Westcott and Fort Hort formulated the first text of which became the forerunner of what we call the Nestle's text today. And, and it was an eclectic text. Westcott and Hort, that's the name, last name of the men that did it, put the text together. They picked and chose from different texts what they thought was the correct rendering and made the manuscripts. And the manuscripts included and were based on mostly Codex B and Aleph. Most of the Wesley's text and the Hort text there, according to Alan, uh, between the Nestle's text and the uh, Westcott Hort text, there's only about uh, 558 variations. So basically, they're the same. Um, Neil Lightfoot, on page 112 of his book, uh, made the claim that it dealt the final blow to the received text, talking about the Nestle's text, upon which the King James Version is based. But it appears that Mr. Lightfoot was not correct in his assessment in that there has been. Um, renewed interest in the enthusiasm in the re received text, that is the Texas Receptus. Since the Nestle's text is basically the Westcott Hort text, and I'm going to view them as, as twins and refer to them just simply as the Nestle's text or the minority text. The sole basis on which the scholars considered the Nestle's text superior to the majority text is the antiquity of the manuscripts of which it comes. It's my contention that the antiquity of manuscripts in some cases is a weakness, not a strength, but rather a weakness. Let me give you an example. I have in my library uh, a living Bible. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the living Bible, but basically it's not a Bible, it's a paraphrase. 
And I was given this Bible when, uh, back in the mid-70s. And I still have that Bible. It's in my bookshelf. And the, basically, the binding of it is very poor. It's just glued together. It's paperback. Uh, but if you looked at it today, you'd say, well, that, it's in pretty good shape. Since the mid-70s, I have wore out three King James versions. And I'm on my fourth. And I'm not wearing it out so much now because we've gone to electronic stuff, you know. So I don't, I, I use the, elect, the computer anymore instead of the old, just getting the Bible, um, the paper. But I wore out three King James versions, and I ha still have that living Bible in my library. Now, if someone was to come into my library uh, and they started looking around and they, they found that living uh, Bible, and they found my King James, the one I have now, and they say, well, this one's older. Uh, it must be better, because it's older. Well, not true. It's better because I don't use it, <laughs> you see. So just being older doesn't mean better, but the basis of the Nestle's text is, is ba they say it's better because it uses older manuscripts. Uh There are only, there, there's a question we have to ask about these older manuscripts. Why is there only one manuscript? Why haven't we found these manuscripts duplicated? If the Christians of the 4th and 5th centuries valued these manuscripts, why didn't they make a lot of copies of them? That's a good question, don't you think? They would, you would think they would do that in order to guarantee their preservation. They would make copies of them, but we only find one copy of them. You know what makes something popular is the fact that it's duplicated. For example, when you talk about New York Times bestsellers, uh, the reason they're bestsellers is because one, all people want them. And so they make several copies of them. So to me, the fact that there's only one copy of these uh, older manuscripts, Aleph and, and B, uh, suggests to me that it was because they weren't very popular. In fact, one was found in a wastebasket, and the other was found neglected on a Vatican library shelf, in the sh on the shelf. Not only do these manuscripts stand alone, they do not agree with one another. In fact, they do not agree with one another more often they, than they agree. I'm talking about the two older manuscripts. John William Bergen, his book, The Traditional Text of the Holy Gospel Vindicated and Established, compares the five manuscripts uh, thought to be superior texts to the Textus Receptus, and he says Codex A, Codex B, the Vatican Manuscript, Codex C, Codex D, and Codex Aleph, the Sinaitic Manuscript, in his book, Mr. Bergen gives compelling, if not incontrovertible, evidence in favor of the Textus Receptus being the text of the Greek New, being the main one of the main texts of the Greek New Testament of the oldest manuscripts that are intact he, according to him Codex B and Codex Aleph he says uh, a predilection for two fourth century manuscripts closely resembling one another yet standing apart in every page so seriously that it's easier to find two consecutive verses in which they differ than two consecutive verses in which they entirely agree. That's on page 33 of his book. 
There is only one of two conclusions we can draw from that. Either one of the texts is uh, not correct and the other text is correct or neither one of the texts is correct. In the remaining text, of which the uh, Nestle's text is based upon, uh, Dr. Bergen compares the text, and he says of Codex A, it's missing 870 verses out of 1,071 of Matthew, 126 verses of John, more than one-fourth of the context of, of uh, Codex A are missing. Codex D is only complete in respect to Luke, missing 119 verses of Matthew 5, I mean, of Matthew, five verses of Matthew, Mark, rather, 166 verses of John, Codex C of mixed 643 out of 1,151 verses of Luke, 513 out of 880 of John, 260 verses of Matthew, and 116 verses of Mark. Therefore, he says, the textual critic is unable to compare the five texts except in about one verse in every three. Even among those passages we can compare, he says we do not find agreement. For example, between the five manuscripts, there are 45 different word variations in the Lord's Prayer recorded in Luke from these different texts. That's quite a bit of variations. Now, there's also internal evidence that uh, the Nestle's text is not the most accurate. Codex B, Codex Aleph, and Codex D all have the daughter of Herodias taken to be the, the daughter of Herod. Codex Aleph has Jesus pierced before his death in Mark 1 and 2 and reads as is written in the prophets in the majority text, whereas the same verse reads as is written in Isaiah, the prophet, in the minority text. Since the quotation is partly from Malachi, the implication is Mark was presenting a factual inaccuracy. In John 1 and 42, the majority text, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Codex B and Alf, both the two oldest, say son of John. Now, these two manuscripts stand alone. All of the old translations, plus the quotations of the early church fathers, and thousands of other manuscripts say it's Jonah. The Vaticanist, the one considered the most valuable, leaves out 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and the last part of Hebrews in the book of Revelation. Sinaiticus has some of the apocryphal books in it. The most convicting of all is the fact that the two most heralded texts, uh, that is by many experts, Codex B and Codex Aleph, do not have Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. It's inconsistent to contend for the validity of these, t last, these texts and stand firm in the conviction that Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 are true and should be considered accurate. Now I want to look at Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 that's left out of these two uh, oldest manuscripts and see if we can determine whether or not they should be in the manuscripts. And I'm not going to go into a detailed study, but we're going to look at a few things that will help us to understand. What, first of all, manuscript uh, support for the verses. 
uh, versions, different translations uh, in support for the versions, for the text, and the early church fathers. Now, we notice that in the first century, we don't have anything there. We don't have any of the first century texts. And, uh, but in the second century, I want you to notice that there's several translations, the earliest, the oldest translations that have Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 in them. And you can see them there on the board. And not only that, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 was quoted by the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Papias, Justin and Martyr, Justin Martyr, rather. So these three men quoted uh, Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. Certainly, Mark 16, 9 through 20 existed uh, in the first century. In fact, some of these men, although it's uh, uh, said that they quoted this in the second century, actually may have quoted it in the late first century. And so we go into the third century, and we also find church fathers who quoted this passage. And then in the fourth century, this is the century in which we find the two oldest manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, which is uh, found in the fourth century. But notice there's also another manuscript from the fourth century. That's the Washington manuscript. And it contains Mark 16, verses 9 through 20. So to discount those passages because they are in these two older manuscripts, and although the Washington manuscript is not considered to be very reliable manuscript, it still has Mark 16, verses 9 through 20 in it. And so we have early uh, confirmation of the fact that this passage should be included in the canon, and that it's true. And there are some major problems with an, an eclectic text. First, the implication that God did not providentially, providentially preserve an accurate text in direct contradiction to the statements that he would. Matthew 24, verse 35. Second, the authors cannot know for sure that they chose the correct rendering for the correct text on any particular portion of Scripture. For example, how can they know if a rendering that differs in Codex B from Codex Aleph if they chose the right rendering? If they chose Codex B, how do they know that that's correct text as opposed to Aleph? What safeguards would there be to prevent the authors of the Nestle's text from choosing a particular rendering based on their theological bias? William Bergen says there can be no science of textual criticism, I repeat, and therefore no security for the inspired word, so long as the subjective judgment, which may easily degenerate into individual caprice, is allowed ever to determine which readings shall be rejected and which retained. You see the possibility for someone who produces a text that supports their religion or their the theology when that method is put in place. The majority text, and I believe that includes the Textus Receptus, I believe is, is the accurate text. God said he would preserve his word by his providence, uh, Psalms 12, 6 through 8. Therefore, we should, we should think that there's a correct text out there and that exists. Now, when we talk about the majority text, I'm not talking about a one text. Majority text, there's about 5,000 uh, majority texts. 
that's called the majority text. It's a family. Now, the first century scribes who were miraculously guided, think about it, and we talked about that last night about copying. They made hundreds, if not thousands, of copies of the 27 books of the New Testament. So from that, we should expect that there should be many copies spread out all over the world. And that's what we find in the majority text. As I said, there's about 5,000 copies of the majority text and they basically agree with one another. The original manuscripts of the first century were distributed all over the known world. Therefore, that's what we should expect to find, that the text would be found all over the world, and that's what we find. Compared to the minority text, the distinct majority text readings tend to show a greater uh, tendency towards smooth and well-formed Greek. They display fewer instances of textual variations between the text and they are less likely to con to be contradictory or difficult if in issues of exegesis they, they are, they're smoother reading and they're easier to to uh, to excuse me interpret in defense of the Texas Receptus which is I consider part of the majority text The Texas Receptus is based on the majority, that is 90% of the text available to us, the Greek manuscripts. That is why it's also called the majority text. The Texas Receptus is not mutilated with deletions, additions, and amendments as in the minority text. The Texas Receptus um, agrees with the earliest versions of the Bible and I have them listed there, Peshitta, Old Latin Vulgate, and Italic Bible. These are all first and these are all second century uh, translations. And to note, these translations were made uh, nearly 200 years before the minority or the Egyptian texts uh, were known to exist. The Texas Receptus agrees with the vast majority of the 86,000 uh, citations from Scripture by the early church fathers. You know, you could take the quotations from the early church fathers and duplicate the New Testament. And the Texas Receptus agrees with those uh, early translations. The Texas Receptus is untainted with Egyptian philosophy and, and belief. The Texas Receptus strongly upholds the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. The creation account in Genesis, the divinity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, his miracles, his bodily resurrection, and literal return. So if, if, you, if you figured it out by now, <laughs> I favor the te Texas Receptus the majority text over the Nestle's text. If you didn't get that point, I hope you get I'm telling you, that's, that's what I prefer. I think that's the best text. In fact, the whole method of modern text or criticism today, I'm talking about how it is today, is based on subjectivism and is really a philosophical system of, of uh, relativism. Uh, they claim it's not possible to know absolutely the original text of the Greek Testament, so 
they're going to put it together for you. That's basically their idea. You can't know what it is for sure. We're going to do our best job to figure it out, and we're going to pick and choose and put together a text, and that's what we're going to go with. But it's really textual agnosticism is what they're talking about. Expect, just think about what we're expected to accept from these critics, these modern-day critics. They, they that, that a group of denominational Calvinists or semi-Calvinist authorities chose for us. Now, think about it. They chose for us, who disagree in many respects doctrinally with them, among a group of texts, the renderings that they thought was best for a manuscript. Now, I'm not prepared to leave that decision to them are in their hands. It is my conviction that God providentially preserved his word in the majority text. So I think the majority text is superior to the, the minority text. I'm not saying that the minority text is useless and, and that it's wrong uh, more than it's not, but I'm saying I believe the majority text is the text that, was, that God preserved the word of God through. Because they're there's five, about 5,000 of those texts in existence, and basically they are in agreement. And so I think God, through his providence, has preserved his word through the majority text. Have more confidence in the majority text than the minority text, those that began with Westcott and Hort. Tonight we're going to look at translations. Uh, how they took those texts and translated from the original language to English. We're going to look at the English translations tonight, or this afternoon. So if you come back then, we'll look at the, a few different translations in English and uh, compare them and talk about the translations. We haven't talked about the first principles, but if you are uh, one who's been sufficiently taught in the gospel and desire to obey the gospel, or if you're one who... Um, Require, or desires the prayers of the church, one of either class, we ask you to come sit on this front pew and, and let your request be known as we stand and sing the song. It's been selected.